Welcome to Employed, a podcast about careers. Whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about, Employed is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm Allie, and today we are speaking with Jenna, a genetics counselor. We talk a lot about non-paternity in genomics because it comes up a lot. The non-paternity rate is about 10%. That means about 10% of people, their fathers and who they think they are. That's something that I've personally had to deal with and, and have to like decide who's going to tell the patient and, and how are we going to communicate that and should we communicate that. Thank you, Jenna, for joining me tonight and coming onto the podcast. Can you introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do? Absolutely. Thank you, Allie, for having me. My name is Jenna Miller. I am a certified licensed genetic counselor. And I currently uh, am employed as a clinical science liaison at a genetic testing company. I live in New Jersey. We do genetic testing on human embryos made from in vitro fertilization. In my current role as a clinical science liaison during normal times, I'm traveling all around North America, educating fertility providers, mostly doctors, nurses, embryologists about genetics, genomics, genetic testing, et cetera. What sparked your interest in this field? How did you hear about it? I actually decided to go into genetics when I was 12 years old. It was sort of a love at first sight situation. We had a unit on genetics in my life sciences class. And from the beginning, I was just smitten. I was already interested in science, but from the beginning, just hearing about how it works, that first Punnett square I ever saw I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. But uh, from the beginning, it was like, wow, there's so much I could learn. It was a little bit self, self-interest, self I think. Um, there's so much I could learn about myself. It's so interesting at that time, that would have been around 2001 and, or two, that 2002, which was right when the Human Genome Project was being completed, which I remember that it was just barely mentioned in that class, but I didn't know what that meant at the time really the things that were happening at that same time that I decided to devote my life to genetics was really what set set up our current field to have just exploded the way that it has in the last, um, well, yes, in the last two decades, but especially in the last decade. I decided on genetic counseling specifically, I think when I was 14, so like high school biology, I learned about genetic counseling as a field. And I was like, that's perfect because it's talking about genetics, it's working with people, it's, you know, in, a, in clinical situations, all things I was interested in. And so when I got to college, I specifically chose my major and my minor with that plan of going into genetic counseling. I guess that's a good segue, what education is required for someone who wants to be a genetics counselor? There's a fair amount. What you do for your bachelor's degree is a little more flexible, but again, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. So I majored in genetics and biotechnology and minored in psychology because there's actually a lot of psychology and psychosocial elements to genetic counseling. So I chose that carefully, but I would say most genetic counselors probably have bachelor's degrees in some biological field or in psychology, sociology, something like that. But then having to complete, there are a number of, you know, hard science prerequisites that you would have to complete regardless of what your major is. But at, at my uh, graduate program, my genetic counseling program, we had students, um, I had classmates with all kinds of degrees from like art, journalism. So you don't have to have a degree in one of those fields. It's just, you know, if, if you're able to plan ahead, that, that might be a, a good thing to do. 
after you complete your bachelor's degree to become a genetic counselor, you must attend um, an accredited genetic counseling training program. It's a master's degree. And, I, and I'm speaking specifically about the United States and Canada. Things are a little fuzzier outside of the US, although there are genetic counseling programs of some kind and there are genetic counselors all over the world. But the, the, the field was invented here in the, in the US. So we have been at it the longest and we're the best established. So it's that it's usually a two years, a two year master's program, or there are some part-time programs that are maybe three years. After you graduate from one of those accredited programs, then you have to be certified. There's a, um, like a certification exam that you take. Very scary test. <laughs> it's like a lot writing on it. Once you pass that test and are certified, I, I'm not exactly sure how many states in the U.S. have licensure now, but a lot, a lot of states, including New Jersey, where I live, and most of the big ones have um, required that genetic counselors be licensed to practice through the state, much like other allied health professions. As part of your uh, graduate training in genetic counseling, there is a lot of genetics, obviously. So we study medical genetics from all different perspectives, be it preconception where I work or pre prenatal um, pediatric genetics, working with children with genetic disorders, oncology, cancer genetics, which has blown up in, in the last decade. There's also adult neurogenetics. There's, there are all different, different fields that you're educated in. But like I said before, there's also a lot of psychology involved. If for anyone listening who knows a lot about uh, psychology or, or uh, clinical uh, therapy or whatever, uh, our, our patron saint is Carl Rogers. Um, so uh, that client-centered Rogerian philosophies are very much in line with the genetic counselor ethos. And you also have to complete a logbook. So there's a lot of uh, clinical interning that's required as part of genetic counseling training. I believe, I know they've, they've tweaked the logbook requirements since I was in school back in the early 2010s, but um, I believe you still have to complete 50 cases that have to meet certain requirements and you, there, there are specific things that you have to uh, record about things like ways in which you participated in an actual counseling session with an actual patient and you're supervised by an already certified practicing genetic counselor who is, you know, kind of teaching you the ropes and letting you explore various skills and giving you feedback, that sort of thing. So the super supervision is a really big part of genetic counseling. There's also a thesis requirement for okay. virtual degree okay. programs. Was it hard to find a school that offered that graduate program? Were you, when it was a kind of slim pickings on, on finding a program and getting into it, was it pretty competitive? It's very competitive and it's a lot more competitive now, even than when I was applying eight years ago. When I was applying, there were about 30 programs in the United States. NSGC.org um, is probably the best place for anyone who's interested in genetic counseling to start of, sort of start doing some research on the field. NSGC is the National Society of Genetic Counselors. On there, I believe they have a list of all genetic counseling training programs um, in the United States and Canada, and there are some international ones as well. At, when I was applying, there were about 30 programs to choose from. Now there are about 50. It's interesting because there are a ton of people who want to become genetic counselors right now. We're kind of in a, in this moment where genetics is becoming such a huge part of healthcare. In the last couple of years, the programs have switched over to a matching system, kind of like if you think of how um, medical students are placed into residencies. So you apply to a lot of different programs 
and then um, you know you would get interviews wherever you get interviews, and then you rank which program at the end of the interview cycles. You 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 rank which programs you're most interested in, and then the programs rank which students they're most interested in. And I don't even know how it works. There's some fancy algorithm to sort of place people um, into the program that is you know mutually beneficial for both parties, and supposedly that should help. Um, maximize the number of students who can be placed. What are the demographics of this field as far as gender and age go? I have lots of statistics for you. The stereotype of genetic counselors is that we're very type A, very detail oriented, very, you know, all about the data and the numbers. And every one to two years, we have a professional status survey put out by the National Society of Genetic Counselors, where they survey all of us, as many as will respond to get as much information as possible about the field, about salaries. We, it's really helpful for salary negotiation. Th- these documents, they'll break down salaries by very, very specific things like roles and regions and number of years and experience. Let's start at the beginning. So of genetic counselors, uh, first of all, about 95% of them are female. And there's sort of an interesting history to that actually. Genetic counseling, like I said, it was originally conceived of as a profession in the late 1960s uh, at Sarah Lawrence College. And it was originally conceived of as a career for women who wanted to get back into the workplace after taking time off to have children, which was very common at that time. But it was also sort of in at that time of like the sexual revolution and a lot of that kind of second wave feminism to this day, even now, um, even now that it's a much broader and scientific, I would say, and more complex profession than it ever was, it's still 95% female. And we're always working on ways. This is one of the few fields where it pays to be male. Um, so if there are any, if there are any dudes out there listen to the, listening to this, you know, we want you, we need you. Although males do make significantly higher salaries. In genetic counseling, which is something we see, I think, in a lot of female-dominated professions like nursing, maybe social work as well. It's conceived of being like a helping profession. Um, it's a little bit touchy-feely, a lot of psychosocial uh, elements, and so maybe for that reason, uh, it also attracts more women. Seventy percent of genetic counselors are over forty, or sorry, under forty years old. The National Society of Genetic Counselors recently announced that they had certified their 5,000th genetic counselor. So there are about 5,000 of us in practice. And if we wanna talk about um, ethnicity demographics, 90% of genetic counselors are of um, white or uh, European descent, which is again, something that we as a field are really trying to work on and improve. We want diversity in our field. It's something we talk about all the time at meetings, how we can encourage um, more diversity, really, in all of these, in all of these uh, categories. Eight percent Asian. That includes East Asian and and South Asian, both. So again, you know, people who are people of color or from other uh, other backgrounds. Uh, we we want you. We welcome you. Please, please come to us, and we will we will accept you with open arms. What range of salary can someone typically expect to make and what kind of factors go into that range of salary? I'm, I'm basing my numbers off of the 2019 professional status survey. There's mm-hmm. supposed to be another one coming out in 2021, 20, uh, okay. but based on 2019 numbers uh, for all respondents, and there were many, 
the average salary overall is about $91,000 a year for full-time genetic counselors. And again, that's irrespective of any of those more granular uh, ways that we could break that down for a starting salary. So, you know, right out of school, you can expect to make about 71,000, but there are a lot of modifiers that more specifically influence your expected salary. And the biggest one is, are you doing direct patient care or non-direct patient care? So what that means is, are you working primarily with patients like in a hospital or clinical setting or are you someone like me who's working more so in industry or in a role where you're doing, where you're not working with patients every day? Maybe you're in management or in advocacy or, you know, some other role where you're not, um, your, your primary role isn't seeing patients every day. The, the non-direct patient care roles tend to um, have higher salaries. So the average salary in direct patient care was 81000 And for non-direct patient care, it was about 110000 can you touch on a little bit on the typical work hours before COVID? And do you feel like this job really allows for a work-life balance? All right. So for me, again, before COVID, I did not work <laughs> very regular hours. Some days I would be getting up at 4 a.m. so that I could leave my house by 5 a.m. so I could get to the airport by 6 a.m. for a flight at 7 a.m. And then I would be flying from where I live in New Jersey. Maybe I'm flying to Los Angeles, right? I would have to get my rental car and, may, and then drive to wherever my first appointment of the day is. Maybe it's a lunch appointment and I get there and give my presentation. And then maybe I, maybe I have a few other appointments throughout the day, other lectures that I'm giving or just um, meetings with clients to catch up or discuss some issues or questions there that they have, technical things. Maybe I don't get, get home or to, to a hotel until 8 p.m. or maybe I have a dinner with a client um, and the sales rep where we're, I'm giving a dinner presentation or we're just, you know, having conversation over dinner. So there are some days that are like, like crazy like that, where I'm probably up for close to 24 hours going and doing a lot. And there are other days where I'm, I was even before COVID where I was working from home and I had less to do other than just plan my future travel and, and follow up from my past travel. And, and so it was really varied in that way. And I, before COVID, I was traveling about 60 to 70% of the time. Now I'm not traveling at all. I'm doing everything remotely, which is working pretty well. You know, you can still have just like we're having now, um, you can still have meetings and, and uh, give presentations and talk to people remotely. It's not quite the same, but I am still able to do that. With genetic counseling, what I'm finding these days, again, so much has changed recently, but you can really pick the lifestyle that you want. So even at my company, so at my company, I'm the only one doing my thing who's a genetic counselor, but we've had genetic counselors who work in sales. We've had genetic counselors who work in marketing. The majority of our genetic counselors are still talking to patients about, uh, about their results or genetic testing or facilitating that. And they work from home exclusively, even pre-COVID. You're expected to have X amount of appointments with clients or with patients per week and you can schedule those whenever you want so you can schedule them you know at 6 a.m patients want times to talk to people you could choose to have all of your you know you could bang them all out in the morning and be done by 10 a.m or you can split it up or make sure that you have time to go pick up your kids in the middle of the day 
or whatever, right? I, I have a lot of my colleagues at my company really appreciate that flexibility. Um, or you could have a crazy job like mine, or you could work in clinic where you might start the day a little bit earlier. Usually in hospital settings, the, the days start a little bit earlier, maybe like 8, 8 a.m. or And then you're working until four or five. You can really decide how what lifestyle you want. For now, where I am in my life, I love traveling. I miss it so much. Let's let's say like pre-COVID. Can you walk me through what an average day looked like for you? If I'm in the field, I would usually have between one and three appointments with clients where I'm going to the clinic. These are IVF clinics. So I'm going either with the, the sales rep who's covering that area or by myself. And I'm meeting with the doctors or the nurses or the embryologists who, who are the people who make and, and take care of the IVF embryos. And I'm giving educational lectures. It could be anything from Genetics 101 to talking about pre-implantation genetic testing, which is the, the, the testing we do on embryos. Or it could be general stuff like hereditary causes of infertility that I'm talking about. Some days I'm working from home and it's pretty light and I'm just booking travel and accommodations and doing expense reports and for a typical genetic counselor in, in a clinical setting, what I've seen is a typical day is maybe you see patients in the morning and it could be anywhere from, you know, one or two to five or six or seven. I mean, it just, it really depends. And if it's a slow day, you see your patients in maybe in the morning and then in the afternoon, you are writing up your like chart reports or your consult reviews where you write down everything that was discussed Maybe it's not, maybe it's a crazy day and you have um, rounds where you're meeting with, with your colleagues from different specialties and reviewing cases, or you're going to a tumor board, you're reviewing cancer cases. Um, maybe it's a day where you have a surprise case where, you know, there was some unexpected finding seen on a patient's ultrasound. And so now you're brought in to kind of talk to them about a really difficult conversation. That's something we really haven't touched on yet with genetic counseling, which is we are specifically trained, we're trained to, to communicate genetics information in a way that, that a lay person can understand one, right? But, um, but also genetics is really complicated and it has a lot of really impactful implications. So if I'm telling a patient that she tested positive for a hereditary cancer syndrome like BRCA or BRCA, if you've heard of that, right? There are these genes that predispose individuals to hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. There are a lot of hereditary cancer centers that predispose to lots of different cancers. But just for example, let's say that I'm returning that result to a patient and saying, based on this genetic testing that we did for you, your lifetime risk to develop breast cancer is 80%, right? That's a big thing for that patient to deal with emotionally. That can be frightening. Um, that can be disappointing. Um, we might be talking about things like prophylactic mastectomies, having your breasts removed uh, before you can develop cancer, ovaries as well. Even beyond that, now we're talking about, well, if you have this, then all of your first degree relatives have a 50% chance to also have this. And how, how do you want to communicate that to them? And how can I help with that? And you know, when you're talking about genetics, it's never just about that one person. It's about the whole family. When I was in graduate school, there was a class on, this was the entire class was just giving bad news, giving bad news. So we were, we would be behind like a two-way mirror with um, my classmates on one side, me with an acting student on the other side. And I would have very little time to prepare to tell this acting student, for example, that their pregnancy was affected with trisomy 13, which, um, is a chromosome abnormality that 
can result in live born babies, but with serious, um, you know, very life limiting birth defects and issues. Most individuals in that situation opt to terminate the pregnancy, but there are other options as well. And so you're oftentimes breaking that news is left to the genetic counselor, or maybe the, the physician will tell them that, but, but then you're, they're taken to the genetic counselor to talk about what that actually means, what their options are. And sometimes, you know, sometimes as a genetic counselor, when you're giving that kind of information, a patient is so overwhelmed, you can't even discuss all of the clinical things, right? right? It's just, we're just, we're just saying, you know, how, what can I do to support you in this Mm -hmm. moment? We can discuss the, the technical aspects and the decisions that you have to make in a moment. Sometimes you're just sitting with them in silence. You're letting them cry. You're being there for them. Probably one of the most impactful experiences I ever had as a student was um, I, it was like my last day at a rotation in New York city. And I was um, I was told, Oh, with your last few hours, why don't you go shadow the maternal fetal medicine specialist who is like uh, kind of like a high risk obstetrician. And most of it was routine, um, you know, various prenatal testing that they were, they were offering or reviewing with patients, but off, off the, the fly, as, as happens in clinical practice, there was a case of a couple who came in for, uh, to, to terminate a pregnancy that was found to have a few different birth defects that, that were um, pretty serious and likely to result in, um, if not neonatal death, then, you know, serious life-limiting complications. And so I was in the room while they had that procedure. And um, as a, you know, I look back at that as a student, I didn't have the, the, the uh, experience and the confidence to really be there for them in that moment, as, as I would like looking back, I, as I wish I would have, but those are the kind of situations that we're helping patients through. I remember it was really impactful because the doctor, <laughs> uh, to his credit, I did not think that he was the most uh, warm. I don't think he had the best bedside manner with them. I mean, it wasn't terrible, but it just, it wasn't, I don't think it was what they needed at that time, a little cold. And uh, so we left that room and this, in this particular case, it was a wanted pregnancy. Um, it was a, this, this couple's first pregnancy. They had gone up to Boston for a second opinion because they, they really took this, this decision seriously. And they were clearly just, it was clearly the worst day of their lives. Right. And um, so we left the room and it was the end of the day and all of the clinical staff, right. The doctors, the nurses, the, the uh, ultrasound techs, they were all kind of in the room where they all coalesce kind of, you know, winding up for the day. They're just having their regular, you know, work chat, whatever. And I saw the couple walk out into the, into the, the waiting room where their whole family was waiting for them, like their parents and other support individuals. And like, clearly it was, it was just this really impactful moment of, you know, here we are going about our day, but these people have had the worst day of their lives and, and their families are there to support them. And that's, that's the kind of heaviness that you as a clinical genetic counselor have to deal with. And that's also a reason why a lot of genetic counselors have have shifted to working in industry because you have fewer of those situations. But it is also really rewarding, I, I should say, to be able to be there for individuals in those situations. Um, you definitely have hard days like that. And, and as, as a genetic counseling profession, we work really hard on self-care as well. So yeah, I mean, it's real. It's just, it's medicine, right? It, this, is, this is the reality of working in most fields of medicine you know, you talked about like some of the rewards of this job. Is there maybe a 
a really good day or one of the best days that you've had at your job that sort of, you know, confirmed that you were in the right field and that you knew, you know, this is exactly what I want to do? Oh, so many. I mean, I, I love what I do. Uh, every day is different and interesting. I mean, there are definitely bad days, but there are definitely more good days than bad days. And one thing that comes to mind that's, that would probably resonate with, with the wider audience. I remember earlier in my career, I was talking to a patient or to a couple who had both come back carriers for the same condition, cystic fibrosis, if you've heard of that. It's one of the more common conditions that people carry. FYI, everybody carries genetic disorders. That's just part of being human. But uh, in this case, they both carried the same condition, which is relatively rare. And this couple was young. They were in their, I think, late 20s. The only reason they even had this sort of genetic testing was because they had experienced infertility. They were trying for over a year without success. And so they presented at a fertility clinic to, you know, to address that. And this testing was ordered just as part of their initial workup. And as part of that initial workup, they found out that they were both carriers of this autosomal recessive genetic condition, cystic fibrosis. You know, I walked them through what their options were, which include we, they could pursue uh, genetic testing on, on their embryos. That's something we're able to do, identify which embryos uh, that we make are affected with the condition versus not. And then we would only use the embryos that are not affected with the condition. There's also the option to use a, an egg or sperm donor or, or to uh, just proceed as normal and take your chances. In, the, in their case, it would have, been, would have been a one in four chance for any child to be affected. They could you know, look at prenatal testing and termination of an affected pregnancy, or they could opt not to have children or to adopt, right? There, there are a lot of different options. And so they were really interested and, and we had a, a good discussion. And it, some, what they said at the end was they were very appreciative of, of the discussion, but they said, you know, in a way we feel like this was a blessing in disguise that we had in, that we experienced infertility because if we hadn't, we would have just, you know, conceived without knowing this and we might've had an affected child. And, you know, it, it was unfortunate that, that we haven't conceived at, up, up until this time, but now that we have this information, we're able to address it and actually have the family that we want. There was another case, if I may, I was talking to a young woman, she was like 21 years old, and I thought it was going to be an easy case because she and her partner were not identified to carry any of the conditions on our panel. But as, as you learn as a genetic counselor, one of the first things you do at the beginning of a session is contract with, with your patient where you're saying, you know, this is typically what, uh, what, I, what I would have discussed with you, or this is what I, I would like to discuss with you. But is there anything in particular that, you know, is of concern to you that you really want addressed? Right off the bat, this young woman said, well, my fiance and I are related to each other. And so that's my main concern. And that's what I want to discuss. So, I mean, her results, I thought it was going to be like a five, 10 minute conversation, right? Cause they were all negative and normal and there wasn't a lot to discuss. But at that point, you know, your plan is out the window and it's like, all right, well, let's discuss this. And, and uh, so we'll ask about the, the health history of all of your relatives, you know, your siblings, your parents, your grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, et cetera, uh, children or pregnancies, if you've had any. And, uh, and so she, we went through her family and I found that her, she and her fiance were, um, were both first and second cousins. So their fathers were brothers, but their grandfathers were also brothers. And so the way that there are ways that you can calculate what proportion of your DNA is shared by descent. Um, and that influences the risk for, um, adverse outcomes with children, right? 
that's why it's there's generally this kind of taboo about uh, reproducing with with your first cousins, for example. Um, but they're even a little more closely related than first cousins. So we discussed that and we discussed how, okay, your, your negative results on this test are great, but there's still a possibility there could be some mutation that's unique to just your family that we're not going to even know to test for. So that, that was the conversation that we had. Um, but she, she was just so like forthright with, forthright with what she wanted to know. And we had such an open, frank discussion. So we, we don't tell people you need to have this test. Or, um, or this is what you should do, you know, you should terminate this pregnancy or not, um, or you should not reproduce with someone who's related to you or not, like that's not our place, right? But so we had with this particular patient, we just had such a, an open, frank discussion. And at the end of it, she, I feel like she felt truly empowered to move forward. Um, and I, I left that just feeling on top of the world because I knew that I was able to help that young girl and address her concerns. Right. Especially when you're talking about having children, these are life decisions. And, and you, you spoke to some of the challenges that people in the clinical setting might face. What about Mm -hmm. you in the industry setting? What are, what are some challenges or what does a bad day look like? Lately, I've been working on um, outcome data collection for my company where uh, we want to know for all of these embryos that we tested, you know, did those, were those embryos transferred back to the patient? Did she become pregnant? Did she deliver a baby? Was that baby healthy? That sort of thing. That's really important for us to be able to um, continue to innovate in the field and understand the performance of our, of our testing. And so a bad day recently is where someone says, had previously told me that they were going, like a clinic had told me that they were going to participate and then they backed out or if there's some sort of setback in terms of being able to move forward or use data, that sort of thing. But in, in, the, clini- in the non-clinical setting, the roles are so diverse that a bad day could look many different ways. Do you have a really weird or unexpected situation that's happened? So for a while, one of my roles was to coordinate family member testing for these cases where we're testing embryos for a single gene condition that's running in a particular family. And that typically involves testing parents. So like if it's me and my husband, oftentimes we would have to test my parents and my husband's parents to be able to create this custom test for the, for my embryos. Um, And so for a while I was involved in coordinating that testing of family members and once or twice results would come back that didn't make sense. Like you know, the results of my father don't match with my results and like what's happening (laughs) there. So we learn a lot. We talk a lot about non-paternity in genomics because it comes up a lot. The non-paternity rate is about 10%. That means about 10% of people, their father isn't who they think they are. That's devastating. That's something that I've personally had to deal with and, and have to like decide who's going to tell the patient and, and how are we going to communicate that? And should we communicate that or should we obscure that information or is it better to be upfront? And so that's, that's something that, you know, if, when you get a result like that, then you go to your colleagues and you're like, guys, this just happened. What do I do? What advice or takeaway would you want to share to someone who might be interested in this field? I, I would say do it. Um, <laughs> uh, a few, a few years ago, I might've been a little more, slightly more discouraging because um, there were limited opportunities for advancement and growth and, you know, salaries were kind of undervalued. Um, Around 2018, 
salaries in the genetic counseling world really like all like kind of across the board bumped up a little bit. And I think it's because of demand because genetic counselors are more in demand than they've ever been as there's genetic testing happening all over medicine and doctors aren't actually trained to deal with genetics and genetic information and genetic testing to the extent that genetic counselors are. So now that we're in high demand, you know, salaries go up. And uh, again, there are a lot more ways that you can go now. And so a few years ago, I may have said, just, just go to medical school or PA school or be a nurse practitioner or something. Now I would say it's a really great field and it's, it's so exciting. It's changing all the time. Ideally be comfortable with numbers. I mean, it's not like calculus that we're doing, but we do a lot of probabilities a lot of statistics, a lot of uh, stating statistics in different ways so patients understand them. If you're not the kind of person who can be non-directive, then genetic counseling is maybe not the field for you. That's something that we really work on. We, we all have our biases, right? And we, we often say it's not, it's not possible to be perfectly non-directive, meaning when I'm counseling a patient not to you know, push them toward one or another option based on my own preferences, but that is the goal. And if you don't feel that you could support someone making a choice that you wouldn't make, um, then maybe genetic counseling is not for you. Like in my role in industry, I'm not faced with those dilemmas very often, but they do come up um, and and we do explore those a lot in our training. For example, um, you know, maybe a patient has opted to terminate a pregnancy or not. Um, and that might be the opposite of what you would, would do or would recommend, but that's not relevant because, you know, this patient, yeah, the, this is not you. And this patient is coming to this decision into this situation with a totally different background and set of values and than I would come with, or sometimes we run into things like sex selection. That's something actually that I deal with on a daily basis. Some people are okay with that and some people aren't. So there are lots of ethical things. If, if someone's interested in ethical dilemmas and ethical issues, genetic counseling is a great field because a lot of times in genetics and genetic counseling, we're asking, okay, one, can we do this? But two, should we do this? It, it really is a great field. And I, I feel like we're in the Renaissance right now. Like, like this is, this is the time. So, I mean, if you're, if you're an undergrad, definitely work really hard in your classes, maybe harder than I did because the field is so competitive. It's not just about having the grades and having, you know, that, that pure scientific knowledge. It's also about emotional intelligence and, you know, being kind and thoughtful and, and uh, having those interpersonal skills. Thank you to Jenna for donating her time to the show. Follow us on Instagram at Employed Podcast, and if you'd like to be a guest on our show, visit employedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 